0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. This year's flu season is hitting children and young adults particularly hard. The CDC reports there have been twice as many pediatric flu deaths so far this year compared to last year at the same time.
2: In addition to flu, outbreaks of pertussis, known as whooping cough, are also raising concerns. On today's program, we'll discuss the flu, whooping cough, and other infections with a Mayo Clinic expert.
1: Also on the program, we'll learn about surgery
2: without a scalpel,
1: gamma knife radiosurgery, and understanding palliative care.
2: All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this.
1: Back to Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Well, it's still early, but the flu season is already off to a bad start. Here to
2: talk about the flu and other infections, including whooping cough, oh, <laughs> is infectious disease specialist and vaccine expert, one of our favorite guests, Dr. Greg Poland. Welcome back to the program.
1: Oh, good to be back. <laughs> so, Dr. Poland, uh, is it shaping up to be a bad
3: one, this oh, flu it, season? It already is a bad one. Really? It's not going to be a bad one. It's a bad one. Because not a good match, or well, well several reasons. One is uh, we have not had the season start off as an influenza B season for three decades, so that's an issue for kids and and infants. They because get, they're not as immune to yeah, B as they are to A. Right, they have not been exposed to it the way you know us as older adults have been exposed to it. Okay, so that's one reason. The second reason that we have is as you say the match. And this is a there's a subtlety here. Remember that the vaccine has four different vaccine viral strains in it, okay? So the H1N1 strain, the match is essentially 100% for one of the B strains, essentially 100% for H3N2, about a 35% match. For the B. Victoria strain, the one that's causing most of the problem right now, that match is about 60%. Now, what that means is that it's not a perfect match, A, but there's still some coverage. People have the tendency to think, oh, well, it's only 30% or 60%, why should I bother getting it? So that you don't get pneumonia, so that you don't get hospitalized so you don't die.
2: What are the statistics we have so far this season? So
3: uh, the estimate is there have been already about 10 million illnesses in the U.S. About 87,000 people have been hospitalized. And really tragic and sad, uh, Tracy, is that uh, people that were here among us just a few months ago, almost 5,000 of them are now gone, Hmm. have died because of flu, a a disease that we know how to prevent and we know how to treat.
1: The statistics show that there have been a fair number of pediatric deaths. Is that
3: because uh, it's a B strain? Exactly, Tom. Yes. There have been about 32 pediatric deaths, about two-thirds of those due to this B strain that's circulating.
1: Now, I read on a couple of cases a young girl in Iowa went blind from the flu. Hadn't heard that. Yeah. She got very sick, almost died, ended up, uh, she's
3: alive, but she's blind. Yeah, that is a very, very, very rare complication. It does happen. Happen, and it relates to an encephalitis, an inflammation of the brain. And in this unfortunate case, it affected the optic uh, nerves and pathways. And so uh, this girl lost her sight.
1: Eleven-year-old boy in New York uh, recently died, and his mother maintained that he had had the vaccine. I guess we don't
3: know when he had the vaccine. Yeah, there's some controversy over that, that he may, she may have been referring to a dose he got last March, which would not be the dose that he should receive this season.
2: Is March, well, when is it too late to get the vaccine? It's
3: never too late to get it for that season. Mm -hmm. So uh, we give the vaccine all the way up until it expires, which is usually June 1st. One thing different about this season is it started very, very early. It started in the South. There's a pediatric hospital in New Orleans that had between uh, July and October had 1,200 100 hospitalized cases.
1: Wow. So even uh, a good match or not a good match, you have always maintained and always told us that if you get vaccinated and if you get the flu, it will be less severe because you have had the vaccine.
3: Exactly right. Now, we're talking at a population level, right? There are some people who may be so frail or who are immunocompromised where that may not hold as true. But when we look at a community level, at a population level, getting a vaccine, vaccine, even if it's not a perfect match, offers some cross-protection, some uh, crossover such that the antibody will affect that virus, even if it's not a perfect match, so that you don't get as ill, as sick. You have advocated
1: for so long uh, for people to get the vaccine, but isn't it true that only about 50% of adults in this country get the vaccine? Oh, it's so
3: frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> There's several interesting things, and this seems to hold true across all vaccines. Women get them at higher rates than men. Older people get them at higher rates than younger people. <laughs> Health care providers are not very good about getting their vaccines, which is a real paradox. Pregnant women are not good at getting influenza vaccine. And
1: it's extremely important for them. Very
3: important. I mean, we see deaths of otherwise healthy pregnant women and hospitalizations and loss of their baby as a result of flu.
2: How do you know if you have the flu? And because norovirus is going around in my neck of the woods. That is not the flu. So let's talk about both of those. Yeah,
3: you know, we use the term the flu, and it (laughs) refers to everything, (laughs) every illness in the wintertime. The flu or influenza is a distinct clinical syndrome of high fever, muscle and joint aches, um, and cough, sore throat. It is not a runny nose. It is not diarrhea. It is not feeling worn down. It is not nausea. And how about compare that to the norovirus? The norovirus is just the opposite. It's nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea.
2: (laughs) And what about getting tested for the flu? If you feel like you may have the worst cold ever, should you go in and get tested?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you are pregnant, if it is a young child, if it's an older adult, if it's somebody that has any kind of comorbid illness where this could be a complicated case of flu, absolutely get in as soon as possible. We ideally like to see those people within 48 hours of developing symptoms, so you don't wait around in those cases to see, am I going to get better or worse? What about for you and I? Working people, otherwise healthy, um, if it's a mild case and you're not developing you know, any particular problems, You know, rest, stay at home fluids, uh, chicken soup, chicken soup actually has some data behind it to show that it helps. All right. So uh, we know
1: that you have those three antivirals available. Um, Tell us uh, about how effective they are uh, when you use them. And would you ever use an antiviral medication if you hadn't done a test that was positive? In other Um, words, you were guessing
3: that they had the flu. Yeah. So let me kind of take those in order. Um, all of the viruses circulating in the U.S. at this point are susceptible to all three antivirals. So okay. we're not really seeing any resistance. That's number one. Number two, as you mentioned, we have three different kinds. The newest one called Biloxavir is a single dose And within 24 hours, the viral titers in the body are tremendously reduced, and people get better very rapidly with that. So there's no reason to delay treatment. We want to see those people within 24 to 48 hours. There's an oral medication called Tamiflu, and then there's an inhaled medication called Zanamivir. In terms of testing to see uh, if, if... you know, you have flu, and if you should be treated, it depends on the circumstance. So, uh, in July, I would test because there weren't a lot of cases. Right now, in the midst of an outbreak, if you have a clinical syndrome that looks like influenza, you just get treated.
1: So, the new one is Zofluza, Biloxivir, and yes. is that oral? It is. It's oral. Okay. But you have to take it within 24 to 48 48 hours of onset of the disease, of the flu. And it only reduces your
3: symptoms by a day or two, right? By, By about, well, it reduces it 24 hours faster than the other medications. Okay, and Expensive? That, and It is expensive. <laughs> you have There's one a in, price to pay. You have one in your pocket? I don't. Sorry. <laughs> but that's the, because I got the flu shot. <laughs> yeah. Can
2: you get the flu twice in the same season?
3: Absolutely. Yes. Remember, there are four different strains that predominate in a, in a flu season. We have all four circulating, not at the same levels or rates. So absolutely, you can.
1: All right. The flu season. It's not too late to get vaccinated. And if you do get sick, the flu will not be as bad if you have had the vaccine. We are with vaccine expert, infectious disease expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Time for a short break.
2: When we come back, we'll find out why whooping cough has made a comeback, get an update on the HPV vaccine, and talk about a mysterious outbreak of pneumonia in China.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You want to say you're listening to Mayo Clinic
3: Radio? You're listening Mayo to Cl- Mayo Clinic Radio at the Mayo Clinic News Network. Oh, Very
1: good. good. You <laughs> have been a guest enough
2: times.
3: <laughs>
1: All right, we've gotten an update on the flu, and now it's time to talk about the whooping cough. Why in the world are we seeing cases of whooping cough?
3: Yeah, well, we see them most winter seasons, number one. Number two, this is a bacteria we're talking about now, not a virus. Number three, we've encountered a really interesting issue. Number one, the bacteria has probably subtly mutated, something we don't generally see in regards to vaccine pressure on that bacteria. Number two, remember that we switched to a different kind of pertussis vaccine, not the whole, whole cell vaccine anymore, but a new acellular pertussis vaccine. That vaccine does not induce high enough antibody titers to last over a long period of time. In fact, by about four years protection probably wanes. Oh, so your immunity to the to the bacteria actually wanes actually and you're more wanes. susceptible. Right. And then the third thing is low immunization rates. So we're sort of battling all three things simultaneously. In 2014, we had 33,000 recognized cases. Last year, about half that, about 16,000. We don't have any numbers yet for this year.
2: It's a big deal. I mean, people like crack their ribs from whooping cough.
3: Well, uh, with my young son's permission, when he was, uh, what, about 11 or 12 years old, Uh, And here I'm an experienced physician with this. I heard him cough when he went to bed, and I'd never heard that cough from him. And I said, he's got pertussis. Cultured him the next morning. It was positive. Got him on, and so nobody would have gotten on antibiotic therapy any faster. That kid coughed for, uh, and the older clinicians will call it the 100-day cough illness he coughed for almost a hundred nights now this is a highly contagious
1: disease too it's isn't it fairly contagious yes most of the deaths occur among babies right that's
3: exactly right
1: and but they haven't been vaccinated or or, is it-
3: or they often have not received enough doses yet by the time they get infected so you know for example we recommend that the parents be immunized to protect that baby because They may have a dose at two months, another dose at four months. They're not really protected until three or more doses have been received. So it must be very frustrating for you that some parents are not getting their kids vaccinated. It it is immensely frustrating. I cannot tell you the, uh, the angst of counseling a parent whose child has died or a a grandmother who has died of a disease that could be prevented or had a significant complication, that family, that community, that church is forever changed by the loss of that person. And it's it's maddening that it has to happen every year, every community. And I I think in part it's because people think, well, whooping cough, was not that a disease of the past? I haven't seen that. Must not be a very common or dangerous risk. And exactly the opposite is true. Where is this campaign of misinformation about vaccines coming from? It's, it start, well, it has always been present. I published an article, of, um, but it must be about a decade ago in the New England Journal called the age old struggle against the anti vaccinationists. This started with, with smallpox vaccine back in the time of George Washington and before people just have this almost sort of Indwelling sense that if they're otherwise healthy, why take a vaccine to prevent a disease they don't yet have? And so they, and and of course, you know, there are uh, low grade fevers, sore arms, et cetera, and they misinterpret that as something dangerous. Or they, um, with uh, Andrew Wakefield and the MMR vaccine, Misinformation gets propagated, and people who are not, you know, very scientifically sophisticated will grab on to that as a reason to not get their vaccine. Yeah.
2: You never discount the the, uh, the power of a good conspiracy scare. Oh, yes.
3: Also, what that does
2: to humans yes. in our minds. Yeah. Let's move on to HPV vaccine. What did you want
3: to address on that issue? Well, I, I think the issue with HPV vaccine is for people to recognize that once one becomes sexually active, essentially everybody... Everybody will get infected. Now, fortunately, most of them will resolve that. But in the U.S., about 33,000 new cancers a year from that virus. This vaccine protects against the seven different cancers that can be caused by this virus and the anogenital warts that, that occur. The problem is immunization rates are too low. Again, women do better than men. Just recently, they have raised the age at which that vaccine can be given to age 45. Used to be limited to people below 20, 26, and below. So I did
1: read recently that uh, adults between the ages of 18 and 26—this is boys and girls, men and women—vaccination rate has increased from 22 to 40 yeah, percent. That's so an that's pretty good. But the goal is 80 percent. So the we goal got a ways 100%, to go. Percent, but, <laughs> but, <yeah.
3: laughs>
1: This interview was recorded last week, and we asked Dr. Poland about the new coronavirus, but since then the story has evolved. So he joins us by phone for the latest.
2: Dr. Poland, what is this coronavirus?
3: Coronavirus is a class of viruses. There have been seven different ones now with this new one out of China that have been known to infect humans. Uh, I want to make the point that coronaviruses are the common cause of the common cold. What's What's different is mutations that allow these to, for example, become SARS, MERS, and now this novel coronavirus.
1: And we now know that it can be transmitted from human to human.
3: And that's one of the pieces of news that we didn't know last week for sure. This is transmissible from human to human.
1: Typical symptoms?
3: Fever, uh, shortness of breath, headache, sore throat. Those are the primary symptoms. And we do have someone
2: diagnosed in the United States. Should we be concerned about it?
3: Tracy, I think that we should be knowledgeable but not overly concerned. This is not somebody who has transmitted it within the U.S. This is somebody who traveled from the epicenter of the outbreak to the U.S., so we know there's an incubation period involved. Standard precautions that we talk about with influenza are the exact same precautions here. Wash your hands frequently, keep them off your face, stay away from people who are ill. And if you are ill, stay home yourself.
1: All right, so there's really no uh, treatment for this disease, and if, if they get it bad enough, it causes pneumonia, and that's what causes the deaths?
3: Yeah, the deaths have occurred not only due to pneumonia, but due to overwhelming viral replication. So you start getting multi-organ failure.
2: You've said that there's a company working on a vaccine. What do you know about that?
3: Yeah, there are actually a number of companies that have been working on a coronavirus over the last uh, handful of years after SARS and MERS and uh, in very early stages. We will not, however have a vaccine that will be used widespread in humans for probably several years.
1: So certainly at this point in time, you're not concerned about a pandemic, a worldwide epidemic of this virus.
3: What's different as opposed to any other time in past human history is that this was picked up very quickly. The virus was sequenced very quickly and kudos to uh, the Chinese scientists who put it into gene banks so that we could get access to it, begin to develop vaccines and antivirals, and we know what to do. These simple respiratory precautions work.
1: All right, thanks so much, Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease specialist and vaccine expert. Thanks so much for being with us.
3: My pleasure.
1: Up
2: next, gamma knife radio surgery and when to use palliative care. Next, a Health Minute with Vivian Williams.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Let's talk about high-intensity function training, such as boot camp-type exercise classes. They're super popular. Dr. Edward Leskowski, co-director of Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine, explains how you can benefit from this type of exercise while avoiding injuries. He says we have an epidemic in this country of obesity and sedentary lifestyle, so anything to get people motivated and moving is good. High-intensity functional training programs are usually very motivating. They're social and they involve very simple things, oftentimes just your body weight to get your heart rate up and receive benefits. The programs tend to include exercises that involve jumping, ballistic movements, or movements that are complex to perform and come with a higher risk of injury. That's why Dr. Laskowski says when it comes to strength training, technique is key. It's not practice makes perfect. It's perfect practice. He really wants the good, perfect movement patterns and your body's tissue to be loaded equally for example if you do a squat improperly the back could be at risk with burpees your shoulders and wrists could be at risk when you do the exercises your technique should be the best it can be One way to ensure optimal technique is to monitor fatigue. Dr. Laskowski says when you get tired, your form tends to deteriorate, making you more susceptible to injury. Also, Dr. Laskowski emphasizes the importance of letting your trainer or program instructor know of any pre-existing injuries or medical conditions. They can modify exercises so you still get results without risking injury. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic. Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Chives.
0: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Tracy, have you heard of a procedure called gamma knife radiation?
2: I have, yes.
1: Actually, gamma knife radio surgery. Well, it's a type of radiation therapy actually that is used to treat lesions in the brain, including tumors. Now it's not really surgery, there's no incision, and in fact that's part of the
2: appeal. No incision, no hole in the skull, and you go home the very same day. Yeah, how here can to you tell, beat that? yeah, here to tell us more about gamma knife radiosurgery is Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon Dr. Bruce Pollock. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you here again.
4: Great, thank you for having me back.
1: Thanks, Dr. Pollock. So uh, it's a funny term, radiosurgery.
4: Explain to us what that means. Okay, it was basically a marriage of, of two disciplines. So you were combining radiation oncology and neurosurgery. And so when they came up with this concept in the 1950s, they essentially labeled this radiosurgery. And radiation oncology would mean radiation for cancers, radiation for tumors. Yes. Where does the gamma come in? The gamma comes specifically with this device in that the radiation sources which emit gamma rays, uh, which are very, very similar physically to x-rays, but because they were using cobalt-60, it released cobalt Um, gamma rays, and so that came up with the idea of the gamma knife. So you've identified a lesion in the brain, and you've decided
1: that it, a gamma knife is appropriate to treat it. Uh, how do you make that decision, and,
4: and what's the planning like? Essentially, there's a number of factors we think about. Uh, it comes down to the size of a lesion, its location, and other patient comorbidities as well as patient preference. So and, if a patient is ill, you might do this as opposed to surgery. Correct. And if, the thing that radiation does not do, that surgery, meaning resection, does, is it doesn't relieve mass effector size. So if it's a large lesion where symptoms are being caused by pressure on an adjacent structure, then the next step would be surgical removal. Uh, But if it's basically symptomatic related to location, but it's not very large, then often radiosurgery is a good alternative to surgical removal.
2: How is this different from regular radiation
4: well typically when we think of radiation therapy we think of larger field radiation where the dose is broken up over time whether it's days or weeks Uh, the older definition of radiosurgery was that all the radiation was given in a single session Uh, more recently it's been broken up uh, that it could be up to five sessions but with the gamma knife it's almost always given as a single session And how long does it take? take? Um, The throughput uh, from showing up at the hospital to leaving typically is on the order of three or four hours. Uh, The actual radiation delivery can be as short as 10 or 12 minutes or as long as two, two and a half hours. And what holds the head steady? We use a frame. Uh, The head fixation is based on a frame that has pins that actually go through your scalp and capture the outer portion of the skull. And so it's a rigid fixation. Um, Once that's in place, then we do imaging, and then we use that imaging to identify the target within this frame. It acts like a map.
2: So does the Gamma Knife, in essence, remove... The tumor, or what does it do to the tumor?
4: Basically, it acts like any radiation, and that the, the energy of the radiation uh, causes d- disruption of the DNA within the tumor, with ideally very little damage to the adjacent tissue. And so, um, as the tumor tries to divide and grow, there's enough double strand DNA damage that the cells can't match up their DNA, and then subsequently, your own body comes in and eats up the tumor. And so, for tumors that are slow growing, they're where only one one or two percent of cells are ever dividing at a time. Uh, these things will shrink slowly over the course of many years, whereas more malignant tumors where 30, 40 percent may be dividing at any time often will show shrinkage within weeks.
1: Are a fair number of these that you do related to metastasis, meaning a uh, patient has lung cancer, kidney cancer, and
4: the cells have broken off, gotten into the bloodstream, and metastasized to the brain and grow there? Is that a fair what? It, It's the most common indication, certainly, with across the U.S. and the world. Um, we still continue to do a large number of benign uh, lesions here at the Mayo Clinic, as well as vascular malformation and functional disorders, but uh, the workload of almost every rate surgical center is brain metastases. Vascular malformation. Uh, Basically, the one we treat primarily is an arteriovenous malformation. It's typically a congenital lesion of abnormal blood vessels within the head uh, that can cause a stroke or a hemorrhage. uh, And so the goal of the radiation is to block off the blood vessels over time. uh, And then blood can't get through the AVM. And then your risk of a subsequent stroke uh, pretty much becomes zero. So you avoid a catastrophic event. Yes. And and how do you find those those um, AV malformations? Historically, the majority of them showed up after a hemorrhage. Uh, but more recently, as people get imaged with headaches and dizziness, we find a lot of incidental AVMs. And so the decision uh, of making that like, we're going to intervene for your unruptured AVM is different, and patients' mindsets are very different. So if you come in after a stroke, you're much more amenable to thinking, I would have my head opened up for that. However, if you go in and say, I have some dizziness, and we say you have this thing that may cause a stroke in the next 30 years, an outpatient based procedure is, is often more tenable to the patient. Yeah, what are some of
2: the that. side effects of gamma knife surgery?
4: The immediate side effects are almost zero. There can be some local tenderness at the pin sites. There can be localized swelling. Uh, But you don't get hair loss and nausea and vomiting like you do with radiation therapy. We think of our early effects, and early to us usually means over months, where there can be swelling of the adhesion tissue that could cause headaches or potentially a seizure if it's in the right location. Uh, And then there's long-term effects that are getting less and less as our our treatments get better. Uh, We're able to deliver the radiation more accurately. And so the amount of radiation that's going to the adjacent tissues is less today than it was 30 years ago.
2: So patients have that gamma knife procedure, and then how long do they wait to see if it worked. I mean, it's not immediate, is it?
4: No. Uh, it depends on the on the reason of why we did it. So for benign tumors, we typically would image you at 6 or 12 months later for a vascular malformation a year or so later. Uh, for a malignancy, we typically do imaging roughly every three months for the first year. Uh, on that imaging, we look at the tumor itself to see if it's responded. Uh, we look for radiation injury. But our biggest thing we look for on the follow-up imaging is more tumors. Uh, sure. If we do a gamma knife procedure, for a brain metastasis, the chance you'll make another tumor within the brain in a year is roughly 50 or 60 percent. And then you zap that one. We often will zap it again. Huh. We have people that are, are frequent flyers and will come back six or seven or eight times over. So the most common indication is for a
1: metastasis, meaning a cancer that's gotten into the bloodstream and spread to the brain. Yes.
4: And how big of a lesion can you treat? If it's surrounded by brain, usually a three centimeter rule, which is slightly more than an inch in diameter, is about as big as we can go. Uh, But if it's a lesion that's against the the bones at the base of the skull, often we can go quite a bit larger than that.
1: And your success rate, I assume, with AV malformations is very good. Yep. Benign tumors, you can pretty much cure those most of the time? Um, Very much, almost always. Do you ever do primary cancers of of the brain, meaning a a cancer that started in the brain, didn't spread there?
4: Yeah, uh, it's very infrequent. Um, it, 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 there, there's a few indications in which we do it, but uh, cytoreductive therapy or surgery followed by radiation therapy and chemotherapy, certainly the mainstay of care for that indication.
2: You said you're getting better, uh, better at reducing the side effects. What is new in gamma knife
4: surgery? Um, over time, several things. Our imaging has gotten better. Our... our uh, platforms for dose planning have gotten better. The devices itself have gotten better, and at this point we 're actually entering our thirty first year of clinical practice with the gamma knife in rochester so we 're approaching ten thousand patients. Our understanding of doses that we need to use, predictable side effects, when to image people all these things have been accumulated over the decades.
2: Have you been here that whole time?
4: I have not been here that long i've been i'm, I'm coming up on year twenty four so just the last five thousand for you uh, about the last five thousand.
1: Gamma knife radiosurgery. It's an alternative to traditional surgery to treat several different lesions of the brain, benign tumors, malignant tumors, AV malformations. You know, it's safe. It's a one-time treatment, and you go home the same day.
5: <laughs> All right,
2: thanks to Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon, Dr. Bruce Pollock. Thanks for being here.
4: Thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. Pollock.
2: We're going to take a short break. Still to come, we'll learn about what the differences are between hospice care and palliative care.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Palliative care. You know, we've heard about it before, but it's specialized medical care that focuses on providing patients relief from pain and other symptoms of a serious medical illness. Now, who's a candidate? Who could benefit? What services does a palliative care team
2: provide? And what's the difference between palliative care and hospice care? Joining us by telling Phone from the Mayo Clinic in Florida to explain is palliative care specialist Dr. Meisha Robinson. Welcome to the program. Thank
5: you for having me.
1: Thanks, Dr. Robinson, for joining us. Now she is not only a palliative care specialist; she's also a neurologist. Actually, did uh-huh. her uh, residency in neurology right here at the Mayo Clinic. So, uh, how do you like it in Jacksonville?
5: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm enjoying my time in Jacksonville. I split my time between neurology and palliative medicine, and I also have a neuropalliative care clinic here. So I'm thoroughly enjoying the work that I'm doing.
1: Neuro-palliative care, meaning that patients with uh, brain issues, strokes, etc. Uh, you provide palliative care for them?
5: That's exactly correct. Not only strokes and brain conditions, but also people that have, for instance, dementia, multiple sclerosis, ALS, almost any neurologic condition
1: uh, can benefit. And unfortunately, there are a fair number
2: of those.
5: I think we're still
2: at a point where palliative care and hospice care are confused. So set everyone straight.
5: Yes. I think a lot of people when they hear palliative care, they automatically think we're talking about hospice care. What I usually say to people is that palliative care is a focus on trying to improve quality of life for people that have serious or advanced medical conditions and that's really an umbrella term. Uh, Many people with advanced conditions, chronic conditions can benefit from palliative care and it's appropriate we say at any age and at any stage. Hospice care is palliative care, but specifically for people who are closer to the end of life. Usually, when people have a prognosis of six months or less, if the disease progresses in its normal fashion, they are eligible for hospice care. So all hospice care... Is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice care
1: and part of the difference is if you're in palliative care, you don't have to stop treatment for your underlying condition, but generally, when you go to hospice care, medical treatment treatment stops. Is that correct?
5: That's essentially correct. Usually, when people are in palliative care, it can be concurrent with their, for instance, chemotherapy or the treatments that they're getting for lung disease or heart disease or with dialysis. In general, when people transition to hospice care, they're really focusing on comfort, quality of life, and not necessarily life-prolonging care. Now, specific discussions would be had with the hospice team about what medications and interventions would continue and which ones would not.
1: So uh, if you are a candidate for palliative care, how do you get hooked up with with the team? Do you have to be in the hospital to to, uh, see a palliative care specialist?
5: So let me say almost all providers are providing some degree of palliative care. We call that primary palliative care. Your primary care doctor, your neurologist, your cardiologist, everybody is trying to help people live better with a better quality of life. But then there are specialist palliative care uh, physicians and teams, uh, for instance, that's what I do, and we can be referred to by the people's primary care doctors or other specialists the same way that they can refer you to a cardiologist or a pulmonologist or a neurologist.
1: What's the most common reason? I mean, why would a family practice physician say, you know, I think we need to get the palliative care team involved? Why would that be?
5: Uh, many times if people are having difficulty with complex symptoms, uh, or if there are uh, some issues between the patient and family members, or if there's a question about what's the next best step or what are the goals of care, people may say it's good to sit down with a specialist in palliative care to really talk through some of these issues or to make recommendations for treatment or management moving forward.
2: Is it covered by insurance?
5: <laughs> it is. It's actually built in people's insurance companies the same way other consults are.
2: It makes sense if it's improving people's lives, trying to help them as they go through a diagnosis. The dialysis example is perfect because that's something that is a long-term uh, that you need to survive, but it does definitely brings hardships on the patient and the caregivers.
5: That's actually correct. And many times people and their loved ones, their caregivers, are silently Uh, going through many emotions or thoughts or questions about what is the best next step. Do we want to continue the dialysis and if so, for how long? Or do we think the dialysis is still being as helpful as it was when we first started it? Sometimes just having some of these conversations takes the burden off of the patient or family members and they are able to speak openly and honestly about what they actually want, what their preferences are.
1: You've talked about a palliative care team. Who's on your team?
5: Generally, palliative care teams include a, a group of people. We call it an interdisciplinary teams. So there are physicians, often some advanced practice providers, like a nurse practitioner, physician assistant. We have social workers. There's usually some spiritual care providers as well and a nurse.
1: Are you particularly adept at helping with pain management?
5: We are. We spend uh, much of the time during our training focused on symptom management. So pain but other non-pain symptoms are also uh, Uh, things that we often see such as nausea, constipation, shortness of breath, and we can provide some recommendations to people's primary care physicians or other specialists about how to manage some challenging situations with those symptoms.
1: How often do you get the family members involved? Is that an important part of what you do?
5: Absolutely. Our care team is not only our patient but also their caregivers or family members. And so much of what we do during our discussions in the office or in the hospital are a focus on symptom management, talk about goals of care, provide some support to caregivers asking about how are you coping with everything going on and making sure that we know what the resources are that they need and try to align those with the available resources uh, that we're aware of. And so those are kind of the three big things that we do. And the last one I would say is advanced care planning, which is a gift not only to uh, the patient so that his or her wishes and preferences are known, but also really to the caregivers and families because they feel like they can honor their loved one's wishes and not feel the guilt of making those decisions unilaterally.
1: Do you also help patients and their families decide between different treatment options?
5: We often will be asked to see people to talk about what's the next best step and many times patients and the family members will come and say this is what has been offered to us. What do you think about that? And it's more of a discussion about what are your goals, what are your priorities, what are you hoping for and oftentimes that helps the person and families with what the best decision is with regard to treatments and so while we don't often lead people to either treatment A or treatment B, we facilitate a conversation about what may be best for them, their situation.
2: Well, you've done a good job of explaining that quality of life is the main goal of what palliative care is all about. When patients and or their caregivers are thinking this is maybe something that we should look into a little bit more, what would you suggest that they do?
5: So Mayo Clinic has a website for our palliative care group, and they can look on there and read a little bit. There's also a video that highlights a couple of patients that have had good experiences with the palliative care group, and I think that will provide a little insight into uh, who we are, what we do, and perhaps how they could benefit
1: Palliative care, it's a resource for anyone living with a serious illness. It can improve quality of life. It helps with managing pain. And it helps patients understand their choices for medical treatment. And if you opt for palliative care, you don't have to stop treatment for your underlying disease.
2: Palliative care, a great resource for anyone with a serious illness. Our thanks to palliative care specialist Dr. Maisha Robinson from the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Thanks for being with us.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks, Dr. Robinson.
5: Thank
2: you. And that's our program for this week.
1: For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
2: Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at Radio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this stage for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.